It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan. He can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today I'm discussing the case of Lisa Irwin. Now, I want to warn you that this is one of the most frustrating cases I have ever covered on this podcast. When 10-month-old Lisa Irwin first went missing in October 2011, the media jumped on her case. Her picture was on the front page of newspapers all across the country. Her parents immediately appeared on major talk shows to beg for the safe return of their daughter. While Lisa's parents were very outspoken about this case, the police were also very outspoken about their concerns about them, specifically about Lisa's mom. But when three witnesses came forward about seeing a man near Lisa's home carrying a baby in just a diaper on that cold October night, it unraveled an entirely different possible scenario, leaving the public unsure of what to believe. And believe me when I say that this is just scratching the surface of this story. While this is a challenging and complicated case, it's an important one. This is the case of Lisa Irwin. Monday, October 3rd, 2011, was not a normal day in the Irwin-slash-Bradley household. Jeremy Irwin usually worked the day shift at his job as an electrician, while his partner, Deborah Bradley, stayed home to care for their three children at their home in Kansas City, Missouri. Jeremy and Deborah met years prior, and each had a son from a previous relationship before having their only child together, Lisa, in November 2010. Now, they're a pretty young family at this point. Deborah's 25 and Jeremy 29. And with two boys, ages 5 and 8, and 10-month-old Lisa, Jeremy decided picking up some extra hours couldn't hurt, and planned to work another shift later that night. This is something he didn't usually do. But Jeremy ends his first shift at about 2.30pm. He goes home, spends some time with the kids, and has dinner. 
At around 4.30, Deborah and her brother Philip run to the store to grab wine and some baby supplies for Lisa. Baby food and wipes, it seems. They get back to the house at about 5, and Philip leaves soon after. And about 30 minutes after that, Jeremy goes to work his second shift at a Starbucks store. He expected the shift to last just a few hours, and to be home sometime before midnight, but it would end up taking much longer than expected. Now, over the years, there have been several slightly conflicting timelines published about this day, but according to most of my sources, this is what happens next. Deborah puts Lisa in her pajamas and lays her down to sleep at about 6.40pm, and closes her door to help block the sound of the other kids. According to an interview Deborah gave for the show People Magazine Investigates, she was feeling a little uneasy about not having Jeremy there with her that night, so she decides to invite her neighbor and best friend, Samantha Brando, over to keep her company. Samantha agrees and brings her four-year-old daughter with her. Now, at first, Samantha actually leaves her daughter with Deborah to play with the boys while she runs to the store to grab some wine. Some sources say that Samantha's daughter did see Lisa that night. Either way, at around 7pm, Deborah puts on a movie for her two sons and Samantha's daughter to watch. After this, Deborah and Samantha sit outside the house chatting, smoking cigarettes, and drinking wine. At about 7.30, a teenager named Shane, who was living a few doors down with his grandmother, went outside to smoke a cigarette. Apparently, Deborah and Samantha see him and just call him over to chat. They'd never met before, but end up talking for about an hour before Shane goes back home. Shane would later report that he could tell that both women had been drinking based off their conversation. But that's all he really reports. He says he never saw the kids. Deborah says that she and Samantha continue to chat and periodically check on the kids that are watching the movie inside. Then, at about 10.30, Deborah says that she and the boys are ready to go to bed, so Samantha and her daughter go home. But Samantha doesn't go right to bed. She actually goes outside and smokes another cigarette and chats with that same teenage neighbor until about 11.30. Samantha reports nothing out of the ordinary that night. But we're getting close to midnight, and Jeremy's shift is running much longer than anticipated. It's now closer to 4am when he finally gets home. And when he gets home, he is not happy. The front door is unlocked, the lights are on, and the window in their computer room was open. And when he tried to shut it, he realized that it was broken. So he's irritated. He just picked up the shift for extra money for the family, now the lights are on, there's something wrong with the window but he does go and check on the kids. He sees that their youngest boy is in bed with Deborah along with a stray cat she apparently found the day before. Their oldest boy is asleep on the top bunk in his room, but when he goes to check on Lisa, the door is open and she's gone. So he runs back to Deborah and shakes her awake, asking where the baby is. Deborah described this moment to KSHB News in Kansas City. Quote, Jeremy came home early in the morning and went into Lisa's room and she wasn't there. Jeremy comes in the room panicked and shakes me awake and says, where's Lisa? And I said, what do you mean where's Lisa? She's in her room. And he said, no, she's not. Immediately, like, you panic instantly. Deborah says from here, she jumps out of bed, wakes up the boys, and everyone starts looking for Lisa. They're checking in closets, under beds, anywhere they think she might be. But after looking all around the house, Jeremy grabs a flashlight to look outside for Lisa thinking maybe somehow she managed to get out of her crib and out of the house. But again, there's no Lisa. So he runs over to Samantha Brando's house, thinking that for maybe some reason she's there. But Lisa's not there either. During their search for Lisa, Deborah and Jeremy say that it wasn't totally unusual for them to leave some windows open in their house. But they noticed something else about the computer room window. 
the screen had apparently been pushed in from the outside. Deborah says when she saw this, her heart just sank, and she knew that someone must have taken Lisa. So they run to the kitchen to grab a cell phone to call 911. They apparently always charge them on the kitchen counter, but when they go to call, their phones are gone. Luckily, Jeremy did have his work cell phone on him, and he is able to call the police and report Lisa missing. And the search begins immediately, with the media right behind law enforcement reporting on each and every update for weeks. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. When 10-month-old Lisa Irwin goes missing from her Kansas City home sometime after 10 p.m. on October 3rd, 2011, it's all hands on deck with law enforcement and the media they have search crews out immediately. By 5.30 in the morning, police officers are knocking on neighbors' doors, and by 7 a.m., there's an Amber Alert for Lisa. It explained that Lisa is 10 months old, white, with blonde hair, blue eyes, and about 30 inches tall. She has two bottom teeth, a small bug bite under her left ear, and a beauty mark on her right outer thigh. She was also apparently sick with a cold at the time. Now, it's really important to understand the area where Lisa went missing from. The family home is located next to a wooded area, 
and there's a steep embankment covered by heavy brush. Some news outlets even called this a cliff, so it's very steep. And this brush was apparently so heavy that they would usually use a chainsaw to help thin it out. Firefighters actually rappelled down this cliff or embankment, whatever you want to call it. They would essentially be lowered into one area, take a look around, pulled back up, and then moved over a few feet to repeat the process until the entire area was searched. And the search for Lisa was extensive. They looked in wells, in the sewer, lakes, the Missouri River, in fields. They even used a metal detector around Lisa's home. And of course, they combed the woods by the home. They also investigated a dumpster fire near the home and went to the landfill the trash was disposed of in twice. And they found some burnt baby clothing from the fire, but police never confirmed if they were Lisa's. Now, just like I said, this was not an ordinary day for this family. I have to say, this investigation doesn't really feel ordinary either. In my opinion, some odd things happened in this case pretty much right away. By the end of the day, day one, Police say that they haven't been able to find a point of entry for a possible abductor to have come into the home, which I personally find kind of weird because Jeremy did say that the front door was unlocked, which seems like a perfectly reasonable point of entry for a possible perpetrator. But what they will later explain is that they just don't believe anyone went through that window where the screen appeared to be pushed in. They say the window's too high up, too hard to get through. And I think the most compelling piece of evidence about this point, in my opinion, is that they say the dust on the windowsill was not disturbed. So it does seem clear that no one went through this window, but again, the front door was unlocked. Either way, police say that they can't find a point of entry for an abductor. By 7pm that night, they also cancelled the Amber Alert for Elisa, which feels extremely premature. But in an article by Lucas Bond for KRCG 13 News, Kansas City Police Department Captain Steve Young said, quote, An Amber Alert is for immediate sense of urgency. After about 12 hours, it's kind of used up its effectiveness. However, that doesn't change anything we're doing at all. Missouri Highway Patrol Captain Tim Hole was also quoted saying, The Amber Alert is meant to work for a short period of time after the abduction. So if no evidence has been found or no calls have come in with information, then they sometimes cancel the Amber Alert in some situations. Now, according to this article, Lisa's disappearance didn't even meet the criteria of an Amber Alert because there was no description of any possible abductor. And it goes on to say that if that changes, if they can get more information about a suspect or a vehicle, the endangered person advisory then may be able to be upgraded to an official Amber Alert. So it seems like they bent the rules for Lisa a bit by issuing the Amber Alert in the first place, and then just canceled it after about 12 hours. I don't know, it's just not something we typically see in these cases, which I think is a theme for Lisa's case. The search for Lisa ended at about 8.30 that night, but Deborah and Jeremy were still being interviewed by police until about 11pm. Deborah says her first interview with the police was about 12 hours, so they were there all day. Now, I'm not quite sure how long they interviewed Jeremy, but they were able to obtain surveillance video to confirm that he was at work when he said he was, so the focus really was mainly on Deborah. At this point, according to law enforcement, Jeremy and Deborah are both completely cooperative with police. In fact, the next day, October 5th, they allow police into their home to search and remove whatever they wanted, at least according to Deborah and Jeremy. 
In an interview with People Magazine Investigates, Jeremy says he can't even remember how many pieces of paper he signed to allow the police to search, take electronics, whatever they needed. While detectives were busy doing all that, searches continued. And at the instruction of police, Jeremy and Deborah were participating in as much media as possible, begging for Lisa's safe return. It does seem like, at least on the surface, that these parents did what you'd expect any loving parents of a missing child to do. They're sitting for long interviews with the police. They're cooperating. They're allowing them to take and search whatever they want. They're doing media interviews. They even agree to allow their two sons, five and eight, to be interviewed without them present. They're doing exactly what we always want these parents to do. They appear to be fully cooperating so that they can be cleared, and the police can move on from them and go find Lisa. By day two, law enforcement continues to be very outspoken about this case. They explain the search efforts, that they brought in FBI scent dogs, and Captain Steve Young says that while Lisa's parents are still cooperating, quote, everything is still on the table. We are not ruling out anything. If we had more to go on, we could start eliminating some things. But we frankly don't have anything that justifies elimination. And I mean, it doesn't take a detective to read between those lines. The parents have obviously not been eliminated as suspects. This combined with the Amber Alert being cancelled and announcing that they haven't found any point of entry for a possible abductor to have taken Lisa paints a pretty strong picture in my opinion. And then, the next day, just about 48 hours after Lisa went missing, Young flat out says that Lisa's parents have stopped cooperating with police. They've been cooperative up to this point, but early this evening they decided to stop cooperating with detectives. The fact that they're no longer cooperating, does that make you think, does that make the department think that they had something to do with Lisa's disappearance? Like everything's on the table, just like I've been saying for three days now, nothing's changed. But if they go from cooperating to not, not cooperating, I, I would imagine that's got to raise some obvious questions. It's a fair conclusion for you to draw. Uh, I can't say that matter-of-factly for the detectives, though. Now, Deborah and Jeremy fight back against this. Jeremy's sister Ashley also goes to the media to reiterate that the family has never stopped cooperating. But in addition to saying the parents are no longer cooperating, the police also announced that they've basically reached their limit with physical searches, and the focus is now on the investigation itself. All of this is happening on the same day that Jeremy and Deborah appear on Good Morning America to plead for Lisa's safe return, and reveal for the first time that their cell phones have been taken from the home. So people go wild for these statements, and the public opinion of these parents flips nearly instantly. And I do want to take a moment to emphasize just how big this story was in the media. Lisa's face and her parents were everywhere. In my research for this case, I literally stopped counting the number of days that Lisa appeared on the front page of local newspapers. It was non-stop all about baby Lisa all the time. Which is a good thing. And Deborah and Jeremy don't back down. They continue to do media. And Deborah describes how investigators pretty much immediately accused her of being involved. She says they showed her pictures of burnt baby clothes from a nearby dumpster fire. They showed her a picture of Lisa and told her to do the right thing. And then they told her she failed a polygraph test. He said, you failed. And I said, failed what? What question did I fail? And he said, you failed the one where you know where your daughter's at. And I said, that's not possible. I don't know where she's at. And I just proceeded to come unglued. 
just not possible, freaking out, telling him no. And then he looked in my face and he said, I meant bad mothers like you. And proceeded to say probably something along the lines of, I need to tell the truth. Or It's hard to hear that, but if it means I have to go through all this to get her back, I don't care. Would you take another lie detector test? Yeah. Why not? Do you think it's possible that they're going to arrest you? I don't know. They'd be wrong. You said that what you have been told has been lies. What do you mean by that? During interrogation, we found this. They showed me burnt clothes. They showed me a Doppler thing with pings from my cell phones. And I'm, I'm led to believe at this point that none of that was real. I hope the burnt clothes weren't real. So as time passes and you feel like you're cooperating and communicating with them, you're getting, what, fed up with the fact that they're continuing to yeah. focus on you? Yeah, because I know I have absolutely nothing to do with my daughter's disappearance. You know, and I still understand it. They're doing their job. But they're not, it's not personal, but it, it, it doesn't make me feel any better about it. Jeremy also continued to reiterate that they never refused to cooperate saying, quote, I told them I had to have a break. No more questions today. I asked them to let me go, and they let me go from the police station. An hour later is when we saw the press conference from them. And this whole the parents not cooperating thing didn't really last long, but there were a lot of flip-flops. By October 11th, Steve Young appeared on KMBC News and said the family was cooperating again. But it was very obvious that there was tension between all parties, and it only got worse as more information came out. Just over a week later, it was announced that during a search of Lisa's home, a cadaver dog indicated a positive hit for the scent of human decomposition next to her parents' bed. And on top of that, Deborah's story does start to change a bit over the course of several interviews. While she had originally said that she put Lisa down to sleep at about 6.40pm, and then checked on her around 10.30 when she came back inside from drinking with her neighbor, she admits that she had anywhere from 5 to 10 glasses of wine, may have blacked out, and just can't remember if she checked on Lisa after putting her to sleep. She also admits to having taken anxiety medication that day, which of course is not great to mix with alcohol. So, this does a few things. First, it makes the public go wild. People begin speculating that maybe Deborah was extremely intoxicated and some type of accident happened with Lisa. Maybe she rolled over on her in the bed or dropped her and either disposed of Lisa's body before Jeremy got home, or he came home to find Lisa dead and they both covered it up together. And as these things started coming out, people began speaking out against Deborah. A former friend of hers accused her of being able to turn on her tears at any moment, and said she knows she's a very good con artist. She said she just doesn't believe Deborah. And many people who supported Deborah and her community spoke out about feeling betrayed by her. Now, speculation about the parents aside, this also completely changes the window of time for something to have happened to Lisa. It widens that window by about four hours. Instead of about 10.30 p.m. to 4 a.m., the window's closer to 6.40 p.m. to 4 a.m. Now, as far as why Deborah's story changed, she's made a few statements about this, basically saying that her drinking wasn't relevant to Lisa. A lot of people have been asking whether you were drinking a lot that night uh, and whether that might explain something here. Doesn't explain anything because I had nothing to do with anything. 
Um, were you drinking a lot that night? I was drinking, but it has nothing to do with my daughter's disappearance. And it doesn't really seem that Deborah makes any other major changes in her story going forward. In her interview for the 2016 episode of People Magazine Investigates, she reiterates that she was drinking, and the last time she saw Lisa was closer to 6.40 p.m. But just as quickly as the public and police began speculating about Deborah's possible involvement, there was a major bombshell in the case. Three witnesses report seeing a man carrying a baby in the early hours of the morning on the day Lisa went missing. Everything is moving very quickly in Lisa's case. There are massive searches, strong statements from police, her parents are doing a ton of media, and the public is picking apart every little piece of information that comes out. And then it's revealed that not one, not two, but three different witnesses reported seeing a white male walking down the road near Lisa's home on the night she disappeared. Not only that, but they report that the baby appeared to be in just a diaper, despite the cold October weather in Missouri. One witness has been identified as Mike Thompson. He was riding his motorcycle home at around 4 a.m. on October 4th, when he saw a man in a t-shirt walking down the street with a baby. Quote, It was 4 o'clock in the morning, 45 degrees. The baby don't have a blanket or coat or nothing. And this guy is walking down the street. I thought it was kind of weird. The other witnesses tell a similar story. They saw a man carrying a baby who appeared to just be wearing a diaper near the Irwin home close to 4 in the morning. And it gets more complicated. There's a surveillance video that was obtained from a BP gas station less than two miles from Lisa's home. The video showed a man coming out of a very heavily wooded area and then walking along the road around 2.15 a.m. Now, this is a very grainy video. It's hard to make out much. And as far as I could find, not much has come of it. And it's not really clear if he was holding a baby. But of course, the speculation is that perhaps this man took Lisa shortly after emerging from the woods by the gas station, and that this is the same man that the three witnesses later recall seeing. And while this is speculation, the timeline does match up. This man could have gotten to Lisa's home around 2.30 or 3, about an hour before Jeremy comes home. Maybe at first, he's just there to rob them. He tries to push in the screen on the window at the front of the house, but maybe it makes a loud noise or it's just hard to do. Then he just tries the front door and sees that it's unlocked. He then sees three cell phones sitting on the kitchen counter and grabs those to maybe sell or ensure that if the owners wake up, they can't call the police. And then for some reason, just takes Lisa instead. Now, we don't really know if there were valuables in the home, but if there were, none were taken, just the cell phones. So for this theory to make sense, we have to try to figure out why someone would go to all this trouble of trying to take a baby. I mean, obviously, I think there are about a million terrible things that cross my mind when I think of someone trying to steal a baby. But the thing is, there was someone seen nearby the home with a history of breaking into homes in the area who did have motive to take a baby. Not only that they have a direct connection to a person who supposedly received a phone call from one of the family's cell phones that night. That's a lot, so let's break it down. When speaking to neighbors and friends of the family, police discover that there's a man living in the neighborhood who does some handyman work for families in the area. This man's name is John Tanko, but goes by the name Jersey, and he doesn't have the best reputation. He's been caught breaking into homes in the area and is basically known as this drifter criminal. 
And yes, he does match the description of the man the three witnesses saw holding a baby in a diaper just around 4am that night. He's also been known to set fires, and was seen in the neighborhood the night Lisa went missing. But there's more. John Tanko used to date a woman named Megan Wright. They apparently had an on-again, off-again relationship for about five months, according to Wright. She says that she was trying to distance herself from Tanko because of his criminal background, and her feeling that he was headed in a bad direction. But here's the thing. While they were together, she told Tanko that she wanted to have a baby. So we have motive. Now to the connection to the cell phone. Well, there's a lot to say about these cell phones that were allegedly taken from the home that night. Like I said, there were three phones in total. Jeremy's phone that he left at home since he had his work cell. There was Deborah's phone, which was turned off and not able to make outgoing calls, according to some reports. And then there was a loner phone from a family member of Deborah's since hers was turned off. Like a lot of things in this case, there have been a few conflicting reports about these phones. Some reports say that the phones in general were used in the area around Lisa's home that night. And there's a lot of talk about one phone in particular making a call to Megan Wright's cell phone at 11.57pm that lasted for 50 seconds. This information actually comes from Wright herself, who told the media that the police called her in to speak with her about this call on the night Lisa went missing. But the police have been very tight-lipped about this. I think it's really important to know that before the night Lisa went missing, none of the family's cell phones had ever dialed or received a call from Wright's cell phone. Lisa's family and Megan Wright had both come out to say that they don't know each other, and Wright says that she didn't actually have her phone with her that night. She lived not far from Lisa's home with about five other adults and a few kids. She says that her phone was kind of used by everyone, and she's made some conflicting statements about who she believed was using it that night. I know, it's a lot to unpack, so stay with me. An anonymous roommate of Wright's goes to the media and says, I know who used the phone. He says it was a guy who was in the house named Dane. And Dane goes to the media too, but will only communicate with them by text. He says, yes, I used the phone. I made a call to get my cell phone turned on, and to arrange some transportation for myself. When asked if he answered the 11.57pm phone call, he doesn't give them an answer. Now, Dane actually plans to meet with journalists in person to discuss everything, but backs out last minute, saying the police instructed him not to talk. And when Megan Wright is asked about this, she flip-flops. She says Dane did have her phone, then says he didn't. So it's hard to say exactly what happened there. And to make things even more complicated, Megan Wright has said that she isn't sure this phone call happened at all. And it's not just her. A private investigator named Ron Rugen, who says he was just doing an independent investigation of Lisa's case, says he's seen the cell phone records, and tells Fox 4 News, quote, Yes, he, meaning Dane, was using the phone, but I've since been granted access to Megan Wright's cell records, and that phone call never went through. There was no incoming phone call to that phone at 11.57pm. Now, Megan Wright's cell phone was taken twice, once by the Kansas City Police and again by the FBI. But at the end of the day, no one has come forward to say that they answered that call. And certainly, no one has come forward to say that they made it. Or if they have, the police haven't told the public that. Now, like John Tanko, Dane has a criminal history as well. He was actually arrested just a few months after Lisa went missing for stabbing a man who thankfully lived. 
And people who say that they know Dane have said that while they don't think he'd be the type to harm a baby, he might help cover something up. In the end, of the three witnesses who saw the unidentified man carrying the baby that night, only one picked John Tanko out of a lineup. The other two say that he is not the man they saw. So what came of all of this? Of John Tanko being seen that night? Of Dane? Of the phone call? The mysterious man? Well, basically, nothing. In the end, police actually clear both men. They say that they were brought in for questioning, were cooperative, and are not considered suspects. How they got to that conclusion, they aren't telling us. But they say that these two men are basically cleared. And as time goes by, the leads for Lisa's case slow down. And her parents also slow down on media appearances, and continue to have a hot and cold relationship with law enforcement. But after taking a short break from doing media, in February 2012, they do appear on the Dr. Phil show. They defend themselves against accusations that they might have had anything to do with Lisa's disappearance. And this does not go over well with the public, especially after Dr. Phil announces that their interview was not enough to make him believe they shouldn't be suspects. And after the show premieres, journalists are back to camping outside their home again. One reporter is seen knocking on the door four times, and then apparently on a window of the home. The police do eventually arrive and ask reporters to stop approaching the home, and this was also met with criticism. I think that one thing the public wasn't quite thinking about while analyzing all these actions is that Lisa's older brothers were just five and eight years old and still living in that house. I have to imagine people outside their home camping out, a reporter knocking on their window could be really scary for them. I did read a similar report of a group that held nightly vigils outside the home. At first, they were really supportive of Lisa's parents, but once they stopped speaking to them every day and participating in these nightly vigils, they began to speak out asking why, saying it was suspicious. And of course, many things transpired in this case that make you wonder if the parents were involved. There's no denying that. I just think that there's this whole other piece to this, that Jeremy and Deborah still had two young children to care for during all this, and it must have been extremely confusing and scary at times to have people constantly outside their home, to have cameras watching them go into their home after school. I'm not saying I know what Lisa's parents' intentions were or if they were involved. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. Either way, over time, there were a few more things that came out. In May 2012, Deborah appeared on the Today Show and discussed a fraudulent transaction on Jeremy's debit card from just a few days after Lisa was gone. Apparently, on November 6, 2011, there was a charge for $69.04 from a British website advertising a name-changing service. Two other charges were attempted and declined, but then the website changed its content after some period of time. At first, the URL went to this name-changing service website, but when they clicked on it later, it was a website selling stationery. It's a really odd piece of this case that we don't have a lot of information on, and Lisa's parents have expressed concern that they didn't believe the police were taking this lead seriously. But like a lot of things in this case, this doesn't really go anywhere. Or if it does, that information has not been released to the public. By the one-year anniversary, investigators say that they've worked over 1,600 leads on the case, and that at least one investigator and one FBI agent work the case every single day. Now, for some reason, they decide not to give an on-camera interview for the anniversary, but they release a statement saying that there are still unanswered questions, 
And the only one with the answers to those questions is Deborah Bradley. By the one-year anniversary of Lisa Irwin going missing, there have been a lot of ups and downs in the case. We have three witnesses claiming to have seen a man carrying a baby near Lisa's home the night she went missing. We have John Tanko also being seen in the area, who matches the description of the unidentified man. But only one witness picks him out of a lineup. And despite his odd connection to a possible phone call made that night, he is cleared. The police have been extremely outspoken about the family and have heavily alluded to their possible involvement, even stating on the one-year anniversary of Lisa's disappearance directly that Deborah is the only person that can answer some of their outstanding questions. But Deborah and Jeremy's lawyer snaps back at this, saying, quote, I don't know how much more involvement we can have. The thing they're looking for in their press release is some sort of one-on-one -on -one interrogation with a detective to interrogate Deborah, to get some kind of confession. And obviously, that didn't work initially. The one thing we cannot allow to happen is an abusive and antagonistic interview process that took place early on. Now, Deborah and Jeremy also release a statement for the one-year anniversary. They urge the public to not forget about her and to just keep looking. They also create new flyers for Lisa and put them up in the neighborhood. At this point, neither side is backing down. And unfortunately, this really is the bulk of what happened in Lisa's case. It was like this huge wildfire in the news for about a year. And then as these things go, over time, everything just slowed down. Now, in 2013, there was a young girl found in Greece that people believed could be Lisa. She had blonde hair and blue eyes and appeared to be about the same age. But they did a DNA test and it was not Lisa. Over the years, age-progress photos of what Lisa may look like were released, and her parents continued to do media about the case. In 2016, they appeared on People Magazine Investigates, and the production was very favorable to them. Steve Young, the officer who made many negative statements about Lisa's parents, told People that they don't have any suspects in the case, and Jeremy says that they're pretty sure they know what happened to Lisa and who did it, but didn't really elaborate. He just said that he and Deborah are not the police. In 2018, Jeremy and Deborah continued to do media, saying outright that they don't care if people think they were involved or not, as long as they continue to share Lisa's story. And in 2020, they appeared on a panel at a virtual crime con event to continue discussing the case. But that is pretty much where Lisa's case is today. So, what happened to 10 month old Lisa Irwin? Well, there are just so many unanswered questions. While the cadaver dog did appear to hit near her parents' bed, the carpeting was never taken from the home to be retained as evidence or for possible retesting, and it obviously wasn't enough to make an arrest. Not to mention, of course, it is not a perfect science and may have been a false positive. Who called Megan Wright's cell phone that night, and who answered? Was that call even made? I have to imagine the police wouldn't have called her in for nothing but the reports about the discrepancy in the phone records are worth discussing. Now, apparently a wealthy family hired a PI to look over Lisa's case, a man named Bill Stanton. He's been very outspoken. He says he doesn't work for the family or the police. He works for the truth. And he told Good Morning America, quote, This whole case hinges on who made that call and why. We firmly believe that the person who had that cell phone also had Lisa. And I have to agree, that call could hold the answer to all of this. And of course, what about that unidentified male holding a baby that night? If it wasn't John Tango, then who was it? 
And does that open the case up to a rare random stranger abduction? Now, we do know that when Lisa's brothers were interviewed, they apparently reported hearing some noises that night. Could that have been someone popping out the screen on the window or coming through the front door? We don't know. My next question is, did Deborah really fail the polygraph test? We know that they aren't reliable. And we also know that police can lie to people about this exact thing. But despite being extremely outspoken about Deborah, they never responded to accusations that they lied in order to elicit a confession from her. And what about the dumpster fire and the burnt baby clothes? We don't know if those were the pajamas Deborah says Lisa was wearing to bed that night. We don't really know anything about this. We don't know who said it or what the results of the searches at the landfill produced. We only know that the clothes were shown to Deborah when she was being accused of killing Lisa. We also don't have any answers about DNA or fingerprints from the house. We know that items were taken and processed, but police haven't really told the public anything about this. And one of my biggest questions is how and why did they clear John Tanko from this investigation? I think that this piece of the puzzle probably holds a lot of information that would make this case make more sense. Of course, this case has no shortage of theories. I even found an article from CNN about someone finding a pentagram near the home. Of course, they're trying to jump to this conclusion that maybe it was some cult thing. Satanic panic and all that. Now, in October 2021, Deborah Bradley did express her theory. She told KSHB News, quote, I think that someone was paid to come into our home. Our house was watched. And they waited for the perfect opportunity. Jeremy never really worked nights. I absolutely believe she was human trafficked. Lisa's parents do hold out hope that she'll come home someday. And it appears that they've kept her room exactly the same for all these years. They've shown pictures of her room with presents just stacked up everywhere. Missed birthdays, Christmases. They even say that they buy her a Halloween costume each year. Now, the family does have a website for Lisa. FindLisaIrwin.com but it doesn't look like it's been updated in quite a few years. On it, it says, quote, Lisa is a toddler now. We have to keep our eyes open for an older version of her pictures. She should be walking, and her vocabulary might be bigger. The auburn tint in her hair might have taken over and look less blonde. She should have a lot of big teeth now, too. Please pay attention to anyone around you that has a young toddler now. Think about your neighbors, family, distant family, friends, and co-workers. Lisa is being raised by strangers. Lisa should be home with her mommy, daddy, and two older brothers who love her more than anything. Every day is a struggle to function without her. Please help us find our Lisa. At the end of the day, we can only work with what we have. And this is what we have. And of course, we know why investigators can't tell the public everything and I fully support that. That being said, Lisa's case has to be one of the most confusing and frustrating that I have ever covered on this podcast. Which brings me right to our call to action. No matter what you think happened in this case, Lisa needs to be found. If she is out there alive, she would have turned 13 years old the week before this episode airs. She's old enough to ask questions and possibly recognize herself. And of course, if she is not out there, whoever did this needs to be held responsible. And while Lisa's case was extremely popular when she first went missing, that media pressure has since lessened. 
so please take a moment to share Lisa's story, and especially share the age-progressed photo of her that I will have on our social media channels and website. There is always hope. As a reminder, Lisa Renee Irwin went missing sometime between 10 p.m. on Monday, October 3rd, 2011, and about 4 a.m. on Tuesday, October 4th, 2011. Lisa is white, and at the time of her disappearance, she had blonde hair, blue eyes, and was about 30 inches tall. She had just two bottom teeth, a small bug bite under her left ear, and a beauty mark on her right outer thigh. It is worth noting that she was sick with a cold at the time, and was last seen wearing purple shorts and a purple shirt with white kittens on them. There is still a $100,000 reward in this case, and if you have any information, you can call the Kansas City Police Department at 816-234-5136, or you can email missingperson at kcpd.org. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney, and is a Voices for Justice media original. If you love what we do here, please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the show in your podcast player. It's an easy and free way to help us and help more people find these cases in need of justice. Welcome to the secret after show. I was losing it at the end of this episode. Um, it's no secret that I get emotional about these cases, um, but this one, whenever it's a baby, is always really, really hard. It just seems especially unfair the younger they are. Um, and like I said, this was one of the most frustrating and confusing and complicated cases I have covered yet. There were just so many moving pieces to this, and so much happened in the first few days, really, of Lisa going missing. That's the bulk of what happened in this case. And I think with so many unanswered questions, which, like I said in the episode, is fair, you know what I mean? Like, they have to hold stuff back so that they can make a proper conviction. I get that. I'm not trying to slam it. Um, It's just hard. It's hard to tell this story because you're like, yeah, there were three witnesses who saw this guy holding a baby in just a diaper near the house. And what came of it? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, we know that they eliminated uh, John Tanko, Mr. Jersey, but that doesn't explain, like, the phone call, which I think is a huge thing. I agree uh, with that private investigator that I, I said that in the episode. I was a little opinionated. I agree that um, that call really holds the answers to this. And I will say that there was information in this episode that I didn't include to protect some of the kids in the case. 
Lisa's brother's names are out there. Um, There's a lot more information about the little girl found in Greece that they thought was Lisa. And I just, and I probably don't need to remind you, and I feel a little preachy, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's hard. I think when kids are little, it's like with my nieces and nephews, you know, the reason that I don't bring them into things that you never see them, you never hear about them, um, is because I believe they have a right to privacy. And when they're children, they can't opt in or out of that privacy. I just default to you deserve privacy. My worst fear, especially with um, the nieces and nephews who have my last name, who have the attorney last name, is that someone Googles them and asks them about it or has some weird prejudice against them. Because let's be real, that can happen. I have hired people. You Google them before you hire them to see what they're like, at least in a lot of positions. You know, employers want to make sure that you're not, you know, being a total idiot on social media or whatever. You're not like racist or some horrible person. Um, But, you know, I've walked into job interviews, you know, years ago and people knew who I was. And it's just weird. And until they're old enough to opt into that, I don't think it's fair to share that information. And you know, if it was relevant, I might, but what's the value in knowing her brother's names? I don't think anything for us. What's the value in going into that little girl who was found, you know, terrible background? Not much for us, but there's so much more at stake if you do talk about it. There's so much more opportunity to harm them. So I guess I just really hope that you guys understand why I don't always include that information and why I really try to protect minors in a lot of these cases. As far as what's been going on with me, well, I was sick last week um, and my voice was awful and I just didn't want to hurt my voice. I didn't, uh, I wasn't feeling up to it. I was not feeling up to it. So thank you for giving me that week off. I am sorry it happened. It really sucks when that happens, but sometimes I just can't record. Other than that, I've just been trying to catch up on work, uh, to be honest, from missing some time being sick. So let's move right on to our segment of hope. This actually comes from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's blog. I don't know why I said it like that. Blog. Um, But we have some happy news, of course, happy shrouded in sadness. You guys know how it is. It's always weird for me to call it happy because none of the circumstances are happy, but we have a great breakthrough in a case. A little girl only known as the Christmas Jane Doe has been identified. Her name is Kenyatta Odom. And you guys, this came from a tip. They say that a tipster recognized a facial reconstruction created by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NECMIC. And there was an arrest. On November 10th, 2023, investigators arrested Kenyatta's mother, Evelyn Odom, and her former boyfriend, Eulister Sanders, age 61, both of Albany, Georgia. They were indicted and charged with felony murder, cruelty to children in the first degree, aggravated battery family violence, concealing the death of another person, and conspiracy to conceal the death of another. This is an ongoing investigation, but apparently this is how the story goes. On December 21st, 1988, just days before Christmas, a truck driver discovered skeletal remains in a box off Duncan Bridge Road in Waycross, Georgia. The remains were found wrapped inside a brown blanket and concealed inside a duffel bag that was placed inside a TV console cabinet. 
and it appears that they were able to determine that she was African-American, a female, and about three to four years old, though she was apparently five. But in January 2023, the GBI says that they received a tip from a member of the public claiming to have seen the Nekmec facial reconstruction. This person tells police that they thought it was Kenyatta Odom, and the rest is history. So obviously the reason this makes this segment of hope is because this is what it's all about. And I know I keep saying that. I know that's like my line at this point, but it really is. This is why I ask you to share every week. And I'm sure that you are so freaking tired of hearing that by now. And I've heard people talk trash about that, how these calls to action, you know, are hollow and it's just a way to make people care when it's really just about salacious true crime. But I think you guys know that's not what it is for me, and that's why we have this segment of hope. This person saw something, said something, and it led to a break in this case. It led to solving this case, essentially. I mean, obviously, they still have to go to trial and that whole terrible process, but um, yeah, she's been identified, and her parents have been arrested for her murder, essentially. Well, her mom and, and the boyfriend, I don't know much about the relationship there, but that's why it makes this segment of hope. Um, you know, whatever this person saw, someone shared, she called it in, and the rest is history. So please keep sharing these cases. You never know who might see it and call in a tip. We've seen it in so many cases now. I don't know how many times I need to do these segments of hope uh, to <laughs> express the power of a share, but I will keep doing it as long as you guys are listening because it's not only that, right? I think it's really encouraging, Um but I feel like these segments of hope, this segment of hope, uh, has really become a nice little palate cleanser for these cases because they're tough. This week's episode is tough. So i just like to remind you of why we do this, why we're here, and that um, though these cases may be unsolved, which isn't particularly satisfying, um, I know I hear it all the time, uh, why don't you do solved cases? It's because I don't feel like I can help them. So I know that these cases um, aren't satisfying in the same way that solved cases are. But if you can help and share and be just a small part of a breakthrough, I can't think of anything more satisfying in true crime. But I'm going to step off my soapbox now, tell you thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.